Light falls through itself, loses most of itself and all its possessions, falls naked into poverty grass, poverty stone, poverty thin water, sees sudden close the smoking breath of a poor cow standing in thin mud, sees skylines blue far, trembling like flames flattened under wind. Wind without hindrance blows on the threadbare light and through it. Light creeps in grass and cries and shivers. And that is a poem called Light Falls Through Itself by Ted Hughes. And over the next 40 minutes or so, I want to share a handful of poems from the book that that poem comes from called The Remains of Elmet where you will hear similar sentiments uh, used to describe not just the landscape of this place. He uses writing about the landscape of his childhood, the Calder Valley, uh, but it will also be used to describe the people who lived there, the people who remain there. And actually, it's worth just going straight into another poem so we can hear how he does people as well. Listen to this. This is a poem called Crown Point Pensioners, and these are the old and the retired who are still in this place that has been ravaged by the Industrial Revolution, ravaged by their population being sent off to two world wars, and just the, the general environmental decline of this piece of earth. This is Crown Point Pensioners, old faces old roots, indigenous memories, flat caps, polished knobs on favorite sticks. Under the blue widening morning and the high lark, the map of their lives, like the chart of an old game, lies open below them. Their yarning moves over it, this way and that, occupying the blanks. Mills are missing, chapels are missing, but what has escaped the demolisher clings inside their masks, puppets of the graveyard's dreams. Attuned to each other, like the strings of a harp, they are making mesmerizing music, each one bowed at his dried bony profile as at a harp singers of a lost kingdom. Wild melody, willful improvisations, stirred to hear still the authentic notes, the reverberations their fathers drew from these hill liftings and hill hollows furthered in the throats. More water toils in the valley. An America-bound jet on its chalky thread, dozes in the dusty burning dome. These vowels furl downwind on air like silk." And what Hughes is doing here, as opposed to the poems that I've read recently from his Book of Diary, uh, Farm Diary Poems, uh, Moortown Diary, and the other poems in the collection called River, 
where if he is not celebrating nature, he is at least finding something worthwhile in it, worthwhile in the toil, and where he does take time out to talk about the talk about what has happened to nature. In Remains of Elmet, he is focusing almost entirely on that. And if you look at the, the book itself, uh, you will see that the poems are much shorter than the ones that I read from River and Moortown Diary, and the lines themselves are much shorter. Uh, the whole thing feels sort of uh, starved and just sort of strange in that way sort of scarified, sort of broken off. And when we look at, uh, a little later, at the comments that Hughes made about the poems and about the struggle he had in ever coming to a, a pleasing version of this book, you might be able to understand why the poems even look this way and sound this way. In his biography of Hughes, Jonathan Bate writes, that when Hughes finally came around to writing these poems, uh, he was at last able to forge ahead with his collection, bringing together geology, meteorology, community, history, and autobiography. People emerge as a product of a place and weather, Jonathan Bates says. And in the next page, he says, this is Ted Hughes as another Wordsworth but a Wordsworth transported from the gentle bosom of the English Lake District to an edgier terrain. You think of that edgier terrain being uh, Blake's satanic mills and uh, Hughes's own just poisoned rivers and poisoned waters that he is uh, uh, especially concerned with near the end of his life, talking about the environmental concerns in England in the 80s and the 90s. and. Let's see here. Let's read one other poem and then go to one of Hughes's letters. So the uh, what Hughes ended up doing, he ended up publishing this book in 1979, and the poems were paired with photographs by the British photographer Faye Godwin. And almost immediately, though, in the mid-80s and finally into the 90s, he began rewriting, reordering, uh, cutting some poems, putting new ones in, and I believe another version was published, or two other versions of the book, were published without the photographs uh, in the 1990s. But then near the end of his life, uh, he realized that that really didn't work either, and that he wasn't sure what he was going for, or he was uncomfortable with what he was going for. He was uncomfortable with the idea of writing so directly and so autobiographically about this place that he grew up in, he was uncomfortable with uh, putting his own parents and their own views about what was happening to their homeland uh, into these poems. And it's just interesting to see his discomfort there. Because in the first edition of the book, it is dedicated to his mother, Edith Farrar. And in the subsequent editions after his father died, the book is dedicated to both of his parents. and. In the, in, the first, uh, in the first poem in the book of the first edition, that is the one I'm reading from before he went back in and tinkered with it, um, in, the, in, the, in that edition of the book, the first poem is just an untitled piece set in italics, where he is talking about his mother and talking about uh, his uncle 
And this is what that poem says. Six years into her posthumous life, my uncle raises my mother's face and says yes, he would love a cup of tea. Her memory still intact, still good under his baldness, her hands a little plumper, trembling more, chatter his cup in its saucer. Keeping their last eighty years alive and attached to me, keeping their strange depths alive and attached to me, he renews his prime exercising what happened as his body tries to renew its cells. Air hijacked in the larynx to fly a dream populated with glimpses, and the smoky valley opens, the womb that bore him, chimney above chimney, hill over hill, a happy hell, the arguing immortal dead, the hymns rising past farms, he has brought me my last inheritance, archaeology of the mouth, treasures that crumble at the touch of day, the huge fish, the prize of a lifetime, exhausted at the surface, the eye staring up at me, but on such a frayed, fraying hair fineness, any moment now, a last kick and the dark river will fold it away. Isn't that it? He has brought me my last inheritance, archaeology of the mouth, seeing his mother still living um, in the face, in the mannerisms, and in the words of his uncle, and seeing all of them still in this landscape where the people do indeed uh, seem to be a part of it. They seem to be almost like standing stones themselves, just uh, stuck in this place that has died and has never moved forward. Now, if we look at one of his letters that he wrote just as he was setting off on these poems, or setting off intentionally on them, uh, this is what he says. He's writing to the photographer Faye Godwin, and um, if I get the, the, the details from the biography right, uh, Hughes wrote a handful of poems about this area uh, in the early 70s. Uh, Faye Godwin was inspired by them to take a few photographs, and Hughes, in turn, was inspired by the photographs that she took to suggest that they do a book together to, uh, for her to do the photos and for him to do the poems. And this is what uh, he wrote to Faye Godwin in 1976, just as he is setting out on uh, putting this book together formally. He says, There are a few old pieces I've written from time to time about that region, and my first idea was to collect those and to add more. It all came up when my old uncle came to stay with me. That's the uncle of the poem that I just read. He was the last of my mother's family, except for a much younger aunt, and he was a living archive of the Calder Valley, a really remarkable and eloquent fellow, a mill owner and the lot, and very close to me. His whole life, at the end, in his 80s, was recounting the life of the whole region, and I thought I really must get what I can of what I grew up in there, because it is over now with that generation. What is taking its place is utterly different 
in a very strange world to me, but it is fascinating too. So my first idea became an episodic autobiography, nothing connected, just poems anchored in particular events and things. I don't know how much there might be or what it will be like, but I know I do have an immense amount locked up in all of that. At times it is overwhelming when I try to release it, but I shall have something to do with it. The odd pieces I'm beginning to get look quite rich. What grips me about the place, I think, is the weird collision of that terrible life of slavery, slavery to work, cash, and Methodism, which was a heroic life, really, and developed heroic virtues inside those black buildings with that wilderness, which is really a desert, more or less uninhabitable. The collision of the pathos of the early Industrial Revolution, and that valley was the cradle of it, also with the wildness of the place. The terribleness of it was sealed by the First World War, when the whole lot were carted off and slaughtered as a sort of ultimate humiliation and helplessness. So I grew up with the feeling that all those buildings were monuments to a great age and a great generation which was somehow in the past. And the people around me, my parents, etc., were just survivors, toiling on and being religious and the rest of it, but really just hanging around, stupefied by what had happened. And as that generation finally died off, my uncle was the last surviving member of the King's Royal Rifles, and my father is one of the last four Lancashire Fusiliers on the Yorkshire side of the border, so they say. The whole region just fell to bits. The buildings collapsed. The walls collapsed. The chapels were sold for scrap and demolished, likewise the mills. A fellow called John Greenbank was a farmhand behind Heptonstall and became a demolisher and is now single-handed, erasing the last 150 years. But that only makes what there still remains even more poignant for me. If only some of that could be caught in photographs, the way the primeval reality of the region is taking over again from the mills, the chapels, the farms, pubs, the bowling greens, the cricket pavilions, pompous houses and rhododendrons, walls and reservoirs, stonework of 19th century giants, and the black peculiarities of the three points of the triangle, the Cone, the Todd Morden, and Halifax. I realize now I was living in the last days of a Pompeii, but it was curious when my brother, he was his older brother, uh, walked over those hillsides with a gun when they were teenagers, uh, he was the first person anybody had ever seen just wandering about free up there. He was regarded as an eccentric. Everybody else was clamped to his farm or to the valley bottom and convulsed with the ideas of toil. The great feeling there was that you were utterly free and alone. Everybody else was at work and out of the way. It was as if I had the whole place to myself, and I'd like to get something of that.
And you can see just in that long excerpt from an even longer letter how bound up his family is uh, with the landscape and with the history of this place, how bound up his own story is. And you see, when you look at Hughes's biography, how uncomfortable he was, especially after the suicide of Sylvia Plath and later the suicide of his second wife. His reaction to all of those things and his natural sense of wanting to be a private person just made him very uncomfortable with doing something straight autobiographic. Uh, even, as he says here, an episodic autobiography, he comes to realize that, uh, and he justifies it in various ways, that uh, he can't or won't or just doesn't want to do something that, uh, that obviously personal. And you can see what happens with the poems um, as a result of that. Let's get back to a few of them here. Let's see. Where he is struggling with that. And perhaps that is one of the reasons why people and the landscape seem so um, inseparable, that that was the best way for him to approach both, was to make them all seem like presences out of nature. This is a poem called These Grasses of Light. These grasses of light, which think they are alone in the world, these stones of darkness, which have a world to themselves, this water of light and darkness, which hardly savors creation, and this wind, which has enough just to exist, are not a poor family huddled at a poor gleam, or words in any phrase, or wolf beings in a hungry waiting, or neighbors in a constellation. They are the armor of bric-a-brac, to which your soul's caddis clings with all its courage. And it's useful to go straight into the next poem, which is called Walls. Uh, the tone and the, and the format of these poems, again, they're much shorter, the lines are much shorter, um, just makes the whole thing feel like one uh, small pieces from one uh, continuous poem. This is a poem called Walls. What calloused speech rubbed its edges soft and hard again and soft again, fitting these syllables to the long swell of land in the long press of weather? Eyes that closed to gaze at grass points and gritty chippings, Spines that wore into a bowed enslavement, the small freedom of raising endless memorials to the labor buried in them. Faces lifted at the day's end, like the palms of the hands, to cool in the slow fire of sleep. A slow fire of wind has erased their bodies and names. Their lives went into the enclosures like manure, embraced these slopes like summer cloud shadows, left this harvest of long cemeteries. And the long cemeteries being actual cemeteries, being these walls, being these 
uh, abandoned houses, these abandoned mills, these chapels that he talks about. Um, the everything that's chipped and wearing away here being the names on the in the actual cemeteries, but also on these buildings, on these walls. Uh, people, uh, their lives went into the enclosures like uh, like manure. Um, embraced these slopes like summer cloud shadows. The people have become part of this nature that is winding down. This is this world that has passed on. A slow fire of wind has erased their bodies and their names, as well as erased the uh, the bodies of uh, everything that was built up in the landscape and now is worn out. And I wonder too if the first five lines of this poem aren't sort of an epigraph to everything that Hughes ever wrote. What calloused speech rubbed its edges soft and hard again and soft again, fitting these syllables to the long swell of land in the long press of weather. He's very attentive to the landscape and to the weather. Uh, always, always he is. And before we get to uh, another comment of his, it is worth going to this miraculous poem. Anyone who has traveled uh, in England, in Ireland, or uh, or up in Orkney, um, the funny thing about being in Orkney was that we went to the post office one day when we, we were there for a week, and we asked if a package was on its way, and the um, and the the guy at the post office said, well, it has left Scotland already, so it's on its way. Um, he didn't even think, uh, he didn't think in, in his casual speech that Orkney was even a part of Scotland or of England, and I always appreciated that. Um, if you end up going there, you will come to these fields of heather, these wonderful purple fields where these, where, where, where this this growth is just existing there in this in this cold and we my wife and I saw it there only a few months ago as well um, when we were in Iceland and uh, if you've experienced just being uh, around this this purple that is surviving in these fields and on these hills um, you will see how accurate this poem of Ted Hughes's is it is simply called Heather the upper millstone heaven grinds the heather's face hard and small heather only toughens and out of a mica sterility that nobody else wants thickens a nectar keen as adder venom a wind from the end of the sky buffs and curries the grisly bare dark pelt of long skylines browsing in innocence through their lasting purple eons. Heather is listening, past hikers, gunshots, picnickers, for the star drift of the returning ice. No news here but the crumbling outcrop voices of grouse. A sea of bees, meanwhile, mapped by the sun. And even the animals here, even the grouse, are crumbling. Even their voices are crumbling. Uh, everybody at some point in this book, uh, the animal life, the plant life, the actual people, 
uh, are are compared to or have just become uh, crumbling stone walls, crumbling buildings, uh, a landscape that has been uh, decimated and evacuated, and that is what is going on. Let's look at a few more pieces from Hughes's letters. Or actually, one more comment from uh, from Hughes himself. Um, he says, "Here it is." So. As I mentioned in the in the episode on Moortown Diary, uh, Hughes, his sec, his third wife, and uh, his father-in-law uh, worked on a farm for a couple of years, and then uh, they stopped when Hughes's father-in-law died. And the poems in Moortown Diary are sort of a memorial um, to his father-in-law. And Jonathan Bate writes that, uh, and this is only uh, a year or so after this happened. He says in the summer of 1976, this is when he wrote that letter to Faye Godwin that I just read. In the summer of 1976, helped by the release into elegy that had come with the poems and memory of Jack Orchard, uh, he was ready to write the poems of Remains of Elmet. But then he heard the news that Faye Godwin had been diagnosed with cancer, and once again a woman to whom he had become close was in danger of slipping into death. In fact, she was treated successfully and went on to outlive Ted by seven years. But the prospect of losing her before he had done justice to her images and to their shared project as well, uh, this gave him the added spur that he needed. And that is just a comment that is worth um, throwing in here, that the prospect of this woman's death, this woman that he uh, respects, and wants to work with. The prospect of her dying uh, helped get him going into these poems as well. And here we'll just read a handful of remarks that he put into letters in the last uh, probably 15 or so years of his life, uh, commenting on the book and on the writing of it and the trouble that he had in coming to any satisfactory uh, edition of it. He says to his friend Keith Sagar in 1985, his friend and critic, uh, this is when he's already starting to rewrite it in 1985, uh, the rewriting has been head in a sack drudgery. I'm glad to stop. It's the sort of book I should have written in my 20s when my feelings about the place were still innocent and unspoiled and fairly simple. And the direct approach, autobiographical style, is always least productive. But by the end of these letters, you'll see that he he did not quite uh, agree with that uh, right at the end of his life. Um, still in 1985, in another letter, he says, I've been rewriting Elmet, or some of it. Not quite sure what to do with the pieces that I have. What began as rewritings became quite different pieces altogether. Still have not unlocked it in the way that I'd like. And then, let's see, brief comment from another letter. And this is funny because this is, this is from 1979 and this is uh, not long after uh, the book was published. He's already dissatisfied with it. He's writing to a, a fellow poet but not a relation named Glyn Hughes. And Glenn Hughes published a book of his own poems about the Calder Valley. 
And Hughes writes to him and says, your book says much more about what I feel about it than mine does. Mine says what my mother felt about it when I was about five. Mine says about, mine says what my mother felt about it when I was about five. Already he is distancing himself from it. Um, he's saying it says more than my book does, even though he's already also said and thought that maybe the autobiographical isn't the way to go. So why wouldn't it say more because he doesn't want it to be personal? Or he's, uh, he's just giving it all to his mother uh, and making it apparently all about her views. And if we go to a letter that he wrote in 1992, quite a long letter in response to a scholar who's trying to write something about him, he says this, uh, in Remains of Elmet, I began first of all thinking, this is my chance to write the autobiography of my childhood in easy, descriptive, little verses. I started with two, no three pieces, the canals drowning black, the long tunnel ceiling in Mount Zion. And then it struck me, this is a book of photographs about a region that belongs to everybody who lives or has lived in it, not only to me. And I was suddenly struck, you see, by the embarrassing egotism of my plan to convert the whole region into my childhood stage. So I abandoned my project. After that, I aimed for a blurred focus, generalized mood evocation in each piece, something that would harmonize with Faye Godwin's photographs, but would avoid that painful collision of sharp visual image and sharp specific verbal image in which the verbal image, after a moment, of psychological distress always loses. And he goes on and on, and you can hear him sort of getting tongue-tied, tongue-twisted, trying to figure out what he means, trying to justify what he's done, trying to realize that he's never really quite figured it out. And it's strange, too, that, that he, call, he talks about an embarrassing egotism about uh, wanting to turn this place just into the stage of his childhood. Um, I don't mind saying this myself as someone who writes poetry, but um, considering poetry's place in the world right now and how little it matters in the lives of most people, um, it doesn't seem that there's much of anything quite as egotistical as saying that you want to sit down and write poems at all. Um, all of this seems to be uh, just an excuse for why he didn't want to make it as personal as he could, and as personal, I suppose, as he wished he may have been able to do it. And that is the sense we get from just these two brief remarks near the end of his life from a letter, again, that he wrote to his friend Keith Sagar. And here you get the answer as to why, even though Hughes uh, reordered, edited, cut poems, added poems, and all the rest of it, uh, 15 years or so after the first edition was published, uh, you get the answer here as to why Faber and Faber, in their edition of Remains of Elmet, used the text of the very first edition, just didn't, just no longer includes the photographs. It is because of what Hugh says right here in October of 1998. He says, Yes, of Elmet's three orderings, only the first one works. That was Faye's, with maybe a nudge or two here and there from me. As I think I told you at the time, I began the writing with autobiographical pieces, 
And then that diabolical fear of subjectivity argued me into writing more impersonal mood pieces to accompany the photos without the conflict of visual imagery and specific descriptions. Still, I managed to do it without disrupting the general wholeness of the inspiration. And again, that, that's just a weird thing to say. He's, he's near, near the end of his life. He's been living with poetry for how many years? Um, and yet he still has a diabolical fear of subjectivity. Um, what isn't a poem but subjectivity? Uh, you could try, uh, try as hard as you like, but uh, poetry um, uh, is subjective. Uh, it is personal, no matter how hard you try to make it uh, impersonal. It is still a pose. It is still a bit of artifice trying not to be uh, impersonal uh, or not trying not to be uh, personal. He says later in that letter, because of this coming and going, I never got the text, let alone the order of it, that I wanted. I feel that I let Faye Godwin down somewhat, except that first time around. The correct or reasonably working order is still to be found, and of course he dies soon after this and he never finds it. But he says best would have been to build the whole sequence around my father and mother and let Faye's pictures provide the backdrop merely. I would then have a book that I wanted and that others could relate to. Well, I mean, I can relate to it now as it is, uh, but you see him coming back to saying, um, back in 79, he says, oh, this is all about my mother. Uh, this is just my mother's ideas. But he comes around to saying uh, 20 years later that it would have been best if he had built the whole sequence around his father and his mother. So let's close out the episode now with just a handful more poems, and then we will hear Hughes himself uh, read the very last one. Here is the title poem called Remains of Elmet. Death struggle of the glacier enlarged the long gullet of Calder down which its corpse vanished. Farms came, stony masticators of generations that ate each other to nothing inside them. The sunk mill towns were cemeteries, digesting utterly all with whom they swelled. Now, coil behind coil, a wind-parched ache, an absence, famished and staring, admits tourists to pick among crumbling loose molars and empty sockets. So those, those are the ones, I suppose, who remain. Everyone else uh, is a sunk mill town, uh, the cemeteries that have digested them utterly and whom they have swelled. Um, but the ones who remain, the living ones, are the, the tourists going along, the crumbling loose molars and the empty sockets. Let's see what the next one is. This is another very short poem called where the millstone of the sky, where the millstone of the sky grinds light and shadow so purple fine and has ground it so long, grinding the skin off earth. Earth bleeds her raw true darkness, a land naked now as a wound that the sun swabs and dabs 
where the miles of agony are numbness and harebell and heather a euphoria and it is almost worth reading just reading these without any comment in between except to say there's that grinding again everything is just ground down into dust and into dirt and here at least is one character who is happy to to be ground down and to be dirt and to be dust this is a wonderful poem called the ancient britain lay under his rock the ancient britain lay under his rock under the oaks the polished leaves of sunday he was happy no longer existing happy being nursery school history a few vague words a stump of local folklore a whirl in our ignorance that valley needed him dead in his cave mouth bedded on bones of cave bear saber tooth we needed him the mighty hunter we dug for him we dug to be sure stinging brows sunday after sunday iron levers we needed that waft from the cave the dawn dew chilling of emergence the hunting grounds untouched all around us meanwhile his pig-headed rock existed a slab of time it surely did exist loyal to the day it did not cease to exist as we dug it waddled and squirmed deeper as we dug slowly a good half ton it escaped us taking its treasure down and lay beyond us looking up at us laboring in the prison of our eyes our sun our sunday bells and he seems to idealize this person who is under the ground uh, this person is the living person this person is the freed person the one who has already been ground into it and does not have to deal with it um, the ones who are alive the ones who are digging the ones who are desperate to understand what has gone on in this patch of earth they are the ones who are laboring in the prison the prison of our eyes our sun our sunday bells and here this is the last poem that i will read and then we'll hear from hughes himself here is a poem called Heptonstall, a poem about one of the old people still hanging on one of the old uh, local characters and here perhaps is a glimpse of what the whole collection could have included more of of personal description and of uh, characters uh, like this Heptonstall, old man of the hills propped out for air on his wet bench lets his memories leak he no longer calls the time of day across to studley soured on that opposite ridge and studley has turned his back on the museum silence he ignores blackstone edge a huddle of wet stones and damp smokes decrepit under sunsets he no longer asks whether peckett under the east wind is still living he raises no hand 
toward Heathershelf. He knows the day has passed for reunion with ancestors. He knows Midgley will never return. The mantle clock ticks in the lonely parlor on the Heights Road, where the face blue with arthritic stasis and heart good for nothing now lies deep in the chair back angled from the window skylines, letting time moan its amnesia through the telegraph wires, as the fragments of the broken circle of the hills drift apart. And who has quite written a poem about old age like that? And you wish he had written more of them about locals, where you, where you go from the poems that imagine the sky and the sun and and everything being ground down by the universe and the huge movement of stars and glaciers and all the rest of it and the slow movement of the valley and the and the the, the burying and the crumbling of the buildings and the chapels and everything uh, all of these huge things uh, it would have been nice to get more vividness of just small details like an old man who lies deep in the chair back angled from the window skylines. But that is not the book that we have, and it is just wonderful to see how even doubt and struggle and being unsure of how to do what you want to do and how to organize what you do have can still bring something that is so vivid and so moving and I would even say, uh, as eternal as all the stuff that has been ground, all the stone, all the landscape, all the uh, pyrotechnics in the sky. And so, thank you all for listening, and here, as we close out, is Ted Hughes himself reading the poem called Cock Crows. In those days, a prevailing craze in the valley was keeping hens. Thornburgh's chicken farm, just beginning to expand, was a giant, but there were smaller outfits, and the hillsides were littered with pens. On the occasion I describe in the next poem, I'd climbed up in the dark with my brother, and we were standing on a high stony ridge waiting for the dawn, surrounded by horizon beyond horizon of moorland. And as the light began to seep through in the east, down in the valley below us, the cocks began to crow. I stood on a dark summit, among dark summits. Tidal dawn splitting heaven from earth, the oyster opening to taste gold. And I heard the cock crows kindling in the valley under the mist. They were sleepy, bubbling deep in the valley cauldron. Then one or two tossed clear like soft rockets and sank back again dimming. Then soaring harder, brighter, higher, tearing the mist, bubble glistenings flung up and bursting to light, brightening the undercloud, the fire crests of the cocks, the sickle shouts Challenge against challenge, answer to answer, hooking higher, clambering up the sky as they melted, hanging smouldering from the night's fringes. 
till the whole valley brimmed with cockroaches, a magical soft mixture boiling over, spilling and sparkling into other valleys, lobbed up horseshoes of glow-swollen metal from sheds in back gardens, hencoats, farms, sinking back mistily, till the last spark died and embers paled and the sun climbed into its wet sack for the day's work, while the dark rims hardened over the smoke of towns from holes in earth.